Let's pray together one more time. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that, that you have caused your word and the power of your spirit to bring life to our hearts. Lord, we were just as dead as Lazarus in the tomb, but, but Lord Jesus, you said, come forth, and Lord, we came forth. Lord, we thank you that, that by your spirit you are still at work in us. Lord, you, you have baptized all of us in your spirit. And Lord, you're filling us by your spirit for particular roles that you've given us in this church. Lord, I pray that you would cause us, each one of us, to be examining ourselves in light of your holy word. And Lord, that you would be gifting us to serve you, that this church might function as a unit, working together for the, the proclamation of the gospel and the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we heard about three sons who had been given gifts by their father as a token of his love. And the, the younger brother received a shovel and was told to go dig a hole. And then he dug until he found a large chest. But his excitement gave way to disappointment when he found that his older brother's name was on the chest. And the older brother climbed into the hole and labored to drag the, dig, drag the chest out of the hole, but he was disappointed that he couldn't open it, no matter how hard he tried. Then the middle brother received an envelope, and in the envelope he found a long chain. But the end of that chain there was a key, and the key opened the chest and revealed a massive fortune for the three sons to share. Brothers and sisters, the gifts are useless on their own. It is not until we work together that the gifts reveal their true value. And this morning I'm going to tell you about another generous father. This father has five sons, and he tells them that he wants to give them a gift. And so he drags a box into the room. The, the box is, is very large and looks heavy. And so he sets the box down on the floor in the middle of his five sons. Together, they tear off the wrapping paper and open the box. And it's one of those awesome Makita combo tools kits. And one son receives a hammer drill, another a circular saw, the third a reciprocating saw, the fourth an angle grinder, and the fifth a cordless drill. The father tells them that the family home is in desperate need of repair and that he wants their help. But the brother with a circular saw doesn't understand the value of his gift, and he quickly forgets what he's received and puts it on a shelf and doesn't use it. The brother with a hammer drill is really excited about his gift, but he doesn't really know what it's used for, so he just uses it to crack walnuts. The brother with a reciprocating saw grumbles something about, about how his dad is, is just given, given the gift for his own needs, and then he goes home to build his own deck. The brother with, an angle gr with the angle grinder doesn't read the instructions and has an accident involving the family cat. There's children here, so I'm not going to tell you the details. And all of this leaves the brother with the cordless drill all alone to help his dad by himself. 
Are you like that first brother? Letting the gifts that God has given you just sit on the shelf. Do you even recognize your spiritual gifts? Or maybe you're like the second brother who, who is using the gift that God has given you for an entirely wrong purpose. Or maybe you're like the third brother who's using the gift that, that God has given you for your own benefit instead of using it to build God's church. Or are you like the fourth brother, eager to use the gift that God has given you but causing damage through your lack of skill? Or are you like the fifth brother, eagerly using God's gift but needing help? Well, what biblical truth do these stories illustrate? In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the Apostle Paul says, For each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We have each been given gifts for the building of the church for the glory of God. And apart, apart from our Lord and Savior, no one person has all of the gifts. We are talking about this a couple of Fridays ago. No one person has all the gifts because if one person had all the gifts, then they could say, I don't need you to somebody else. Or else somebody could say, you don't need me. But that's the illustration that Paul says the church needs each other. We need all of the gifts operating together for the building of the church for his glory. But just think about this for a second. In God's matchless wisdom, he has given each one of us gifts, and then he has sovereignly placed us together in this local church to love one another and to serve one another by, by building up the body because he loves us in, intimately and wants his name to be glorified. It is an unbelievably, amazingly wise plan. Only God in his omniscience could have thought of something so beautiful. Only God in his omnipotence could have put something so complex together. Only God is in, in, in his infinite love could transform weak and rebellious people like us to love each other and to serve each other and to love and serve him. This is God's beautiful plan. Think about the different people and the different dynamics in this church. People have come from all over the world and, and are here in Kelowna at this particular time and a part of this church family. Just think for a second about all the different decisions that, that you have made and, and the things that you have done under the providence of God to lead you here right now at this particular point in time. Just think for a second about you where you were before Christ called you. About the way that, that you were living for the world and the flesh and the devil. And how God took out your rebellious heart and gave you a heart of love for him and love for his church and then empowers you to be able to serve. This is a glorious plan. This is God's church. So here when we've been, we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians and we've, we've taken a, a sort of a, a, of a break from, from an expository series working through the book of 1 Corinthians just to, to, to dig deep into what, what the understanding of, the, of these spiritual gifts are. Because we, we realize that, that people just often don't understand what they are or, or what their gifts are. Well, last week we looked at, at three offices that, that have been given to the church. That of, or sorry, two weeks ago we looked at, uh, at the offices of apostles, prophets, and teachers. Just have a look for a second at, uh, at Ephesians 2 verses uh, verses 19 to 22 by way of review. 
You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This, this refers to the scriptures. But explain that, that while, while prophecy does in a, in a more narrow sense still take place, the offices of the apostle and the prophet no longer exist because the foundation of the church has been laid with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And so the canon has been closed, the, the scripture is completed, and there is no longer a need for the, the office of the apostle and the prophet. And teachers, especially those who, who hold the office of, of elder, also called pastors, are, they continue to build on that foundation. But it's not just, just pastors who build on the foundation. It's, it's the whole church that builds the foundation. Just flip over to Ephesians 4.16. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see that there? Each part working properly. Well, the, the, the question that needs to be asked, are you working properly? Are you and your, your, your spiritual gifts are vital to the building up of this church? Your spiritual gifts are as vital as those of anyone else in this church. It, it's not just, just teacher. It's not just the upfront gifts that are important. All the gifts are important. All the gifts are necessary in order for the church to function the way it should. So it doesn't matter whether your gift is as a, as a teacher or an encourager or as a, as a giver or as a servant. The church needs you. The church needs you. The sermon is not entitled Unwrapping Your Spiritual Gifts. It's Unwrapping the Church's Spiritual Gifts. Your gifts aren't your gifts. They belong to God. They belong to the church. And so if this is your church, your gifts belong to this church to be used for the building of this church. This morning, we're, we're going to be working through uh, each of the, the remaining gifts that are, are presented in Scripture. We're going to be looking at the gifts as they're described in, in this week and the next week in 1 Corinthians 12 and also Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. And now, I don't believe this, this gift is exhaustive. Um, th there's other things that the Scripture des describes as gifts of the Holy Spirit, but these particularly are gifts for the building up of the church. And all spiritual gifts are, in a sense, gifts for the building up of the church, but these ones specifically in the context of, of corporate worship are the ones that we're going to be focusing on. And I also need to point out that, that just as, as these gifts are to be used together in the local church, it's, it's often, there's an often not a clear division between the gifts, that, that often they overlap. And it's also um, helpful to think that, that many of us have many of the different gifts in operation. We need to be in prayer, seeking the Lord to, to reveal what those gifts are in each of us and how we can best use them for the building of this church. Well, last week we looked at, at the more extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, miracles and healing and tongues with interpretation. And I explained that, that I don't believe that there's any passage of Scripture that says that they ceased with the end of the apostolic age or with the closing of Scripture, or the canon of Scripture, but... But if they do indeed continue, it is not what we're seeing in most churches that claim to have the gifts in operation. 
because their behavior does not line up with the scriptures in this regard. And we'll talk a lot more about this when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. I said the week before, we, we saw how the Lord has gifted the, the church with the, apostle of pro, the offices of apostle and prophet and teacher, referring to those individuals who have been given spiritual gifts to serve in those roles. And of those three, it is only the office, uh, the teaching office, that of pastors or elders that still remains. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at, at gifts that, that many would probably see as more mundane. They're, they're not the, 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 the glamorous, so to speak, gifts of the Holy Spirit. But again, they are equally important as the other, other gifts. And, and I would say again that, that, that these things aren't mundane. The, these gifts aren't mundane. Whenever we do anything for the glory of God, it's, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember that. We need to rejoice in what God is doing. So this morning we're going to be looking at, at the spiritual gifts of helping, administration, the utterance of wisdom and knowledge, and faith. And then in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll finish with distinguishing between spirits, exhortation, giving, leadership, showing of mercy, evangelists, and pastors. So, so first of all, helping. This is the, the sixth on our, on our list of, uh, of spiritual gifts. There's about 20 in scripture, but this is this is the sixth that we're going to be looking at, and this is is here from from First Corinthians chapter twelve, um, down in verse twenty-eight. You see that there? It's he says, then gifts, well, that they gifts of healing, then helping, and so here's this is where we are on the list that of helping. Well, th- this first gift refers to an action, and it, it literally means to to take up a matter or to take up helpfully. The theological dictionary of the New Testament describes it as the activity of love in the dealings of the community. As the activity of love in the dealings of the community. In Acts 20:35, Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders using his own example of working to provide for himself, saying, working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so narrowly, he's, he's talking there about, about giving financially, but, but the application is, is much broader, isn't it? It's, it's, it's always a blessing to give rather than to receive. When, it, when we're talking about giving of ourselves and giving of our, of our spiritual gifts, it is more a blessing to minister to others than it is to be ministered to by others. And this, is, this is what I experience again and again when I, when I go and, and, and seek to, to minister to, to people in the church, especially as I go and, and meet with some of the elderly people in the church. And, 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 and they, they, they bless me, even as I'm seeking to bless them. But the term there in Acts 20.35, when, it, when, it when he says, help the weak, it's, it's the same word. And it's, this, is, this idea of, of the gift of helping is closely tied to the gift of service as described in Romans 12, verses 6 and 7, where, where Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. So if, in, if our gifts of service, then we do this by the grace given to us as a gift received and as a gift to the church. First Peter 4, 11, Whoever serves 
serves as, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Whenever we serve in, in a spiritual gifting, it is with the strength that God supplies. We are not serving in our own strength. It is very easy to serve in our own strength. But the fruit of that often comes out when you're left alone to, to help some, to, to, to do some work and nobody else is there to help you. The grumbling that takes place in your heart or, or when, when nobody says thank you or when you, uh, or when you, you only serve in order for other people to see. These, this is evidence that you are serving in your own strength and this is not the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for service is diakonia. It's from which we get the Greek word, we get the English word deacon. And so we're, we're all called to serve, but some are particularly gifted in their service. In 1 Corinthians 12, 5, Paul says that there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. The operation of, of all the gifts in this sense is service. But of, of those who serve, there are some who are particularly gifted as servants. That's why Paul, when referring to, to Phoebe in Romans 16, says, Phoebe, a servant. Or some, some Bibles actually say, Phoebe, a deaconess. It's, it's just, he's just saying that, that Phoebe is a servant. Not, I believe, referring to, to Phoebe being in, a, in an office of, of the deacon as, as those who were set aside in, in Acts chapter 6 and as the office of the deacon functions to this day. Of those who serve, there, there are some, some men who also meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13 that will serve as deacons in, in vital support roles in the church. And if you, we've been going through those, those gifts. If you, if you look at, at 1 Timothy 3, there's actually quite a bit of parallel between the gifts of, a, of an elder and, or the, the qualifications of an elder and the qualifications of a deacon. One of the key differences is that of teaching. And so the elders also serve. Elders need to be qualified in the, in the, with the same qualifications that deacons have, but, but elders are, are unique in that they also are, are, are need to be able to teach, whereas a deacon isn't. And, 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 so, and this is, whether it's teaching in public or, or privately, an elder needs to be able to teach others in the church the Word of God. And so they're, they're responsible for spiritual oversight in the church. But deacons are particularly gifted as servants. And, and it's, it's our prayer that the Lord would, would raise up men as deacons in this church. And so, so Dave and I have been talking at, at great length about this, and, and we're, we're excited to see what God is going to do in raising up those men. But when we serve in the way that Paul is talking about here, we're, we're filling, fulfilling God's law, aren't we? In Galatians 5, 13 and 14, Paul says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but to, through love to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So someone who is serving others is really all they're doing is loving their neighbor as herself. They're, they're seeing a need, whatever that need is, as a, a practical need or, or whatever, and actually seeking an opportunity to, to, to go and serve them. Because they love them. Not because they, they want people to say, to give them a pat on the back and say, oh, you're such a good guy. I'm so, I'm so blessed to know someone like you. No, it's because you're actually thinking about somebody esteeming them better than yourself and you're actually considering, considering their needs above your own. 
So what does the gift of service look like in the church? This is the person who enjoys serving others in, in various ways. This person genuinely esteems others more highly than him or herself. And they're, again, they're not doing it for the accolades or the thanks of others, but because they want to serve God by serving his church. They aren't practicing the righteousness to be seen by others, Matthew 6, 1, but, but because they love God and want to serve Him. And out of the love that they have for God and the thankfulness that they have for all that Christ has done for them, they're seeking opportunities to demonstrate that love in the body. So quite often that the people that are gifted in this way, they do routine tasks in the church so that others are free to serve in, in other areas. Th- this church has a number of people who are gifted in this way. The ones who joyfully fill the communion cups and, and prepare the bread. The ones who faithfully clean the church. The, the ones who stay back and clean up after others have gone home. The ones who, who bring food and, and snacks for, for our, our Wednesday uh, meal and for our, our Friday family night. They, they, when they do these things for the glory of God, with, whether anyone else knows about, about it or not, these people are... are are exercising the gift of help, so the gift of service. But this isn't one of those gifts that people exalt. But it's one that's exalted by God. Again, it's vital in the life of the church. It is so vital that the, uh, the apostles established the office of the deacon in order to fulfill this role. And so we're, we're thankful for the many people in, in this church who are, who are gifted, have the gift of of helping or the gift of service. And again, we're praying that the Lord will raise up men to serve in the office of the servant, in the office of the deacon. Okay, well, let's look at the seventh on our list, that of administration. This word, it's translated administration in the ESV and the NASB and the the New King James and the NIV. In the King James, it's translated governments. Now, the Greek word here is Kubernetes, which, which, which is it's really helpful. It means to steer a ship. And so it, it figuratively came to refer to, to a statesman or a civic leader. And in the church, it's, it's quite often it's, it's a leader in the church. But this is, this is another one of those gifts that isn't exalted by people, but it is exalted by God. These are the people who get the job done. They're organized. They're efficient leaders. They, they're able to, to break down a project into its components, and, and they're concerned about the details of tasks, and, and they're able to identify the gifting of others in order to be able to delegate responsibility. And there's a sense that, that some of those who are, who are gifted in this way as administrators will be elders in the church, serving as a, a helmsman in the congregation, helping to direct the church to its God-given goals. In my church in Louisville, the, the, the third staff pastoral position that was to be created was created in the church after there was a, a pastor for preaching and a pastor for biblical counseling was an administrative pastor who was particularly gifted in being able to practically implement the goals of the church. And this man is, is passionate about the direction of the church and he knows the strengths and the weaknesses of those in the church and helps people to serve in their gifting to work together to build up the church for the glory of God. So that this can be can refer to those who are leaders in, in official positions in the church, especially for elders but also for deacons. 
but others who have the gift of administration can, can serve in other areas. It can, serve, it can involve uh, organizing people into service roles in the church or work projects or cleaning. It can involve those who are, are gifted to organize people to work, to work with the kids or, or in the nursery. This gifted person is happiest working behind the scenes, organizing others, and, and even doing things like crunching numbers, things that, that, that many of us either aren't good at or, or just don't enjoy. The church needs people like that. And I pray that the, the Lord will, will gift me to be more like that, and that the, that the Lord will give others, will gift others in the church with this, with this gift. We need people who are going to serve as leaders in the church in the office of elder, but, but also to do many other administrative tasks in the life of the church. This is a, a vital gift in the church. And the next two, numbers 8 and 9, are the, the utterance of wisdom and knowledge. Actually, on my, li- on my master list, it's, it's numbers 9 and 10 because we, we've already looked at one. But, but the utterance of wisdom and knowledge, and we see this here in 1 Corinthians 12, 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to, the other, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Now, some take the, the, the it's, it's often translated the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Some people take this to be the gifts whereby the, the speaker is given uh, a special revelation. It's in a supernatural word from God to be able to speak into the life of someone present. They see those gifts as miraculous and being more prophetic in, in character. And others view these as more natural gifts, as the ability to speak wisdom or knowledge into a, a situation, not, not through the, the direct and immediate agency of the Holy Spirit, but, but through knowing the Word of God and being able to apply it correctly. Now again, as I said at the outset, this is actually not a natural gift. This is a supernatural gift because it is a gift of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit helps us to be able to, 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 to understand and to apply the Word of God. And 1 Corinthians 12.8 is, is actually the only place where these terms are used or referred to as spiritual gifts. So, so we really can't draw any firm conclusions on this passage. But I believe here that the weight of the argument points to the fact that Paul isn't referring to something extraordinary, supernatural, yes, but, but not extraordinary as compared to, to miracles and healing and tongues. The words that, that Paul uses here aren't technical terms. Wisdom, so, which is in Greek sophia, and knowledge, which is gnosis, were, were common terms in Greek culture, and they simply referred to, to wisdom and knowledge respectively. But it's, it's it, I believe here that, that Paul is referring to something that is, is distinct from the, the so-called Word of God or the, the prof, in the prophetic sense because Paul has another term that he uses there. It's, he uses it in this very passage, the gift of prophecy. In fact, he goes into great length in, in chapter 14 describing it and controlling its use. The reality is when, when these gifts are in operation, it is, again, it is supernatural. The Holy Spirit is operating and doing something in the heart of the man or a woman that they would not have been able to do on their own. And to those who would say that, 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 that would make the case that it's, it's, it is supernatural because they would say that, that, that the list in uh, verses 8 to 10 of 1 Corinthians 12 includes all extraordinary gifts, in, including, um, including prophecy and healing and whatnot, 
I would ask them to consider the context of the passage. Paul is telling the Corinthians that no matter what their gifts are, they're important to use for the common good. So let's just take a look then at, at the, the utterance wisdom or the, the word of wisdom. As I mentioned earlier, there, there's nothing in the immediate context that tells us directly what it means, so we have to look wider. Well, Paul uses the word wisdom 16 times in 1 Corinthians. So he obviously thinks that it's vital that the Corinthians get it. Well, in chapter 1, he, he contrasts wisdom with foolishness, saying that, that we can't understand God through the wisdom of the world. Or in, and in chapter 2, he says that, 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 that he is imparting a secret and hidden wisdom of God taught by the Spirit in, in verse 13. Now, of course, this wisdom is first and foremost the wisdom of the gospel, but I believe here extend, it extends to all godly wisdom. Consider James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. And we understand that all Christians have been given wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but, but some Christians are uniquely gifted with wisdom. This involves the, the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of a believer, enabling them to bring principles of God's word to bear on a specific situation. I'll say that again. It involves the Holy Spirit's work in the heart of a believer, enabling them to bring principles of God's Word to bear on a specific situation. Solomon clearly had this gift. And it is operating, I believe, in the church today when the, when the, when the Spirit brings a, a specific passage or a principle from God's Word to mind when you're dealing with a specific situation. It's my prayer when I, pr when I prepare to to preach a sermon that, that the Lord will enable me to, to exegete the text, but also to exegete the congregation. To have wisdom in, in understanding the application of the truths of this passage to us today. And it's, 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 it's evident when, when, when we see somebody who's especially a, a biblical counselor, there's people that I know who, who are able to, when you, you talk to them about a situation or a problem, and they're able to immediately bring the, the truth of God's Word to bear on your situation. And there, there are people that the church needs who are, who are specifically gifted by that. And we seek, we're seeking opportunities to, to identify those who have that gift and to be able to help develop that gift, again, for the building of the church. But of course, in order to be able to exercise this gift, the person has to be very familiar with the Word of God. This is, this is a gift that, that you sharpen and you hone through your, your reading and your study and your meditation on Scripture. Although it, it's not directly listed in the qualifications of an elder for in 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, I believe that it's vital that an elder is gifted in this area. Because you can't teach unless you have the gift of wisdom. And so, so there's some who have this, this supernatural ability to apply God's Word to situations in life. And if you have this gift, it's going to be recognizable. But the one who has this gift of wisdom is not putting himself forward. It's helpful here to consider James's comparison between spiritual wisdom and fleshly wisdom in James chapter 2, uh, verses 13 to 18. Please just turn there for a moment. James 2. 13 to 18. So it's James 3, 
13 to 18. Notice first in verse 13, he says, Who is wise among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. See there in verse 13, the meekness of wisdom. It, it's, it's, this wisdom is tied to humility and gentleness as opposed to the type of wisdom that seeks to promote itself. The wisdom that seeks to promote itself is fleshly wisdom, and it's manifested in jealousy and selfish ambition. It is used for the promotion of self, not for the building of God's church. And so may we, may, some of us may have wisdom, but we, may, we need to examine our wisdom in the light of God's word and say, am I demonstrating the wisdom of God that comes from above, or am I demonstrating fleshly wisdom? And, and may God grant us repentance to be able to, to exhibit spiritual wisdom that seeks the good of others and the building up of others for the glory of God. Now let's just look at the, the utterance of knowledge or the, the word of knowledge. And again, we need to look wider than, than just in this immediate passage. Paul here acknowledged that the Corinthians, he acknowledged that the Corinthians had knowledge. He said at the outset of his letter, in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. But then in chapter 8, he criticizes, he criticizes them for their knowledge that puffs up instead of building up the church. Some of the Corinthians were, were flaunting their knowledge that God is one and that an idol is nothing. And so they were eating in, in pagan temples and so they were destroying their weaker brothers. So in a parallel to the, 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 the wisdom that didn't come from above, this was, was a, a knowledge that didn't come from above in the sense that they weren't walking it out in love in the context of the local church. In Hosea 4.6, the prophet says that, the, that God's people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. And God criticized Job's counselor, saying, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job 38.2. So there is a word without knowledge. In Proverbs 1.7, we see that like wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And in, in Proverbs 2.6, that the Lord gives wisdom for from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And so, so wisdom and knowledge are, are clearly gifts from God. In Ecclesiastes, again and again, we see wisdom and knowledge right next to each other. They, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. In Isaiah 11:2, which is a, a prophecy describing the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, obviously referring to Jesus Christ, the prophet says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus was full of the spirit of knowledge. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that knowledge will pass away when the perfect comes. He's referring here to the return of Christ. And at that time, when Christ returns, as, as Richard Gaffin, who is actually a cessationist, explains that the, the termination of the believer's present fragmentary knowledge based on likewise temporary modes of revelation when the perfect comes won't be needed anymore. When Christ returns, we're not going to need this gift operating in the church because we will have perfect knowledge and we will know even as we are known. As the, as the sin nature is completely obliterated. 
as our ignorance of who Christ is and, and of his ways are completely obliterated. But Christ hasn't returned yet. This, this, this gift is still necessary in the church. So, so what is it going to look like? Well, once again, I believe that it's, it's something different from a, a prophetic utterance. I believe it has to do, again, with the knowledge of God's word. And, and it is intricately tied with the utterance of wisdom. It is, it is the knowledge of God's word. And this is the kind of person who intimately knows God's word. And, and, and once again, we should all know God's word, but, but this person is uniquely gifted to be able to, to put it all together, to understand the, the big picture and the details. And I believe David Vogt is, is one who, who is gifted in this way, with the knowledge of the word of God. In the, in the way that, that he is, he knows details that, that about the scriptures that, that and, and how they relate to the big picture of things that, that I haven't even considered. And I believe it's because God, it's, it's certainly he has studied these things, but it is it, God, as I believe, gifted him in this way. And so this is, this is a vital gift for elders in the church who, who are required to teach the word of God to others. We need wisdom and we need knowledge working together. Number 11, faith. And this is the last one we're going to look at this morning. Like, like so many of the other gifts, faith is something that all Christians have. If we didn't have faith, we wouldn't be Christians. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews 11, 6. All Christians have received faith as a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So just for a second, consider all the negatives there. It is not your doing. It is not your works. There is no room for boasting. Salvation does not come through any human agency. Salvation is through God's work alone. It is monergistic, God, through God alone. The, and the faith that saves is part of the gift. Your faith is not of yourself. It is God's gift. But when, when Paul refers to the gift of faith in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, he, he's talking about something else. He's talking about, about another level of faith. It is still faith in God, but it's the kind of faith that trusts God to do what he has promised to do in his word. And here, George Mueller's definition. Faith is the assurance that the thing which God has said in his word is true and that God will act according to what he has said in his word. Faith is not a matter of impressions, nor of probabilities, nor of appearances. So, so the person who, who has the gift of faith is, is not the person who says when they're sick with terminal cancer, God is going to heal me. Because that is not promised in Scripture. That is never promised that, that God is going to heal you of cancer. But the promise is that God will glorify Himself in you and through you 
in, in spite of the cancer and even because of the cancer. That's why if you, if you watch um, Paul David Tripp's testimony of, of what the Lord is doing through his kidney disease, it is a testimony of faith. He knows that unless God miraculously, miraculously works, he is going to, to live out his days with this disease. But he has a holy confidence based on the promises of God's word. But this is the person who, who isn't, isn't resting in the fact that, that, yes, God has promised he's going to heal me. Because you can't know that. You can only know what God has promised in his word. But this is the person who still prays. This is the person who still prays, God, please heal me if it be your will. If it be your will. But Lord, I'm resting on the fact that, that you will use this because you have promised to use it for my good and your glory. You have promised that, that you will, will use this to transform me into the image of Jesus Christ because I've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is the person who has the gift of faith. It's the kind of faith that is able to trust God in the midst of difficult circumstances. This kind of, the person who has this gift is a prayer. They are a prayer. Their natural response is to go to God and trust Him with the outcome, whether it is a simple need or in the midst of a crisis. They know that, that God has promised to respond to prayer, maybe not in the way that, that is, is comfortable or necessarily the way that, that we in our flesh want him to respond, but we know that God is going to do it for our good and his glory. They know that, as C.H. Spurgeon said, that, that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. The prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. This is a beautiful statement that, that shows, shows on the one hand God's sovereignty and on the other hand our responsibility. God has decreed that he would respond to the prayers of his people and so the man of faith prays. The woman of faith prays, confident in God. This is the person who follows the example of the Apostle Paul walking by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. But yet again, this, this, this gift of faith is not what you see in most churches today where faith is, is either distorted or it is lacking altogether. So on the one hand, you have the word faith movement where the, the concept of faith is corrupted so that it becomes faith in faith and not faith in God who is the real object of our faith. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you have churches that are entirely rationalistic. Their teaching might be orthodox, but it lacks the power of the Holy Spirit to bring change in the hearts of those who hear. I think here of the, a statement by, by Martin Lloyd-Jones, talking about preaching, that, that preaching is logic set on fire. Logic alone will never save anyone. Logic alone will never bring repentance to somebody's heart. Is the preaching of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in the man of faith that actually brings about that change in the hearts of Christians. Please turn again to, to the book of James. And we find here in, in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. 
We have this, this gift in action. James 5, 13 to 18. Here we have somebody who is sick. The elders are called to pray over him, anointing him with oil. And look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Whose faith is it? Is it the faith of the sick man? No, it's the faith of the elders. So when somebody in the word faith movement says that a healing didn't work because the sick person didn't have enough faith, they're wrong. The problem is they don't have enough faith. But the ground of, of this is in verse 16, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Brothers and sisters, our prayers will be inhibited by unrepentant sin in our lives. One clear example of this is, is in 1 Peter 3, 7, in the, the next book over. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Look at this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, if we do not treat our wives with the honor that they deserve, God will not listen to our prayers. I have, have unbelievers who have been saying that, that, that they're praying for Liam. Well, I'm, I'm thankful for the, the kind thoughts, but, but God's not listening. God is not listening. It is only the prayers who are pray that are prayed in Jesus' name. Now, we don't, when I say that, it's not just, it's not tacking on in Jesus' name as though it's trying to twist God's arm or some magic words that makes, makes God have to do what we say. Praying in Jesus' name is praying as a child of God in the authority that we have as a child of God, as, as somebody who is a redeemed sinner and is able to go to the throne room of God boldly because not of their own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ granted to them, because he paid their debt. It is, it is, that is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So we can take heart. We can take heart because, because all of us, if we're Christians, can pray in Jesus' name. All of us. Have, can have God listen to our prayers. God is listening to your prayers. If you are here in Christ, God hears your prayers. Let that kindle the gift of faith in your heart. But again, we can also take heart because in James 5, 17 and 18, we read that, that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The prophet Elijah is our example in this. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very encouraged to be considered in the same category as Elijah. But what... what James is saying there that even in his, even in his weakness, remember how Elijah just after his, his battle, well it wasn't his battle, it was God's battle, battle with the prophets of Baal, how he ran for his life out of fear of Jezebel. 
Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. Take hearts. Take hearts. When it comes to the, the gift of faith, I think of men like George Mueller. When the Lord laid it on his heart to establish orphanages in England, he had only two shillings in his pocket, the equivalent of about 50 cents. And he depended on faith to serve the Lord. And without telling anyone his needs except God alone, over the course of his ministry, he received 1,400,000 pounds. That's about $7 million. And so we, we see that in the, in the big picture. But in the, in the day-to-day, when there were the, how, did, how did George Mueller learn to exercise his gift of faith? How do you think it was? Through trials. Through trials. God doesn't necessarily just zap us and give, and give us faith. It, it, is, it, it is grown in the soil of painful circumstances. It is grown in the soil of having needs, of having real physical and spiritual needs and when you see God act in response to your prayers what happens is your faith grows your faith grows and 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 you begin to exercise the gift of faith and I believe there are people here in this church who have this gift just one illustration in the, in the life of of Mueller one morning at, in the orphanage he was was sitting in the dining room with about 300 children waiting to eat breakfast, but there was no food on the table. They were out of money. And so Mueller simply prayed, God, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. Amen. Less than a minute later, there was a knock on the door. It was the baker. The Lord had woken him up at three in the morning with the thought that the orphanage needed bread. So he baked bread that morning and delivered it to the children. But that wasn't all. Soon afterwards, there was another knock on the door. It was the milkman. The milk truck had broken down right outside the orphanage. And the milk had to be taken off the truck or else it would be spoiled. So it was donated to the orphanage. Was that just a coincidence? Did the milk truck just happen to break down in front of the orphanage after Mueller prayed for food that wasn't even on the table? Of course not. It was the faithful God providing for his children. God had given George Mueller the gift of faith, and and by God's grace, Mueller was acting on that faith, and God was glorified. When you read George Mueller's autobiography, he says that, that the main purpose of his ministry wasn't even to help orphans. The main purpose of Mueller's, if this is his, in his own words, the main purpose of Mueller's ministry was to glorify God in his provision for his people when they act on faith. And that's why Mueller never told anybody what he needed except God. And God responded. This is the gift of faith. When it comes to the gift of faith, I think of men like Hudson Taylor who had the, the same the same uh, view of these things as, as, George, as George Mueller. Hudson Taylor was a, a pioneer missionary to China in the 19th century, and I, I heartily recommend his biography, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Even before Taylor left England, his faith was evident. This is a quote from him in the, in the biography. It says, To me it was a very grave matter to comp- contemplate going out to China far from all human aid, there to depend on the living God alone for protection, supplies, and help of every kind. I felt that one's spiritual muscles required strengthening for such an undertaking. 
There was no doubt that if God did, if faith did not fail, God would not fail. Let me say that again. He said, if there was, there was no doubt that if faith did not fail, God would not fail. But he asked, well, what if one's faith should prove insufficient? He says, I had not at that time learned that even if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. He says, it was consequently a very serious matter to my mind, not whether he was faithful, but whether I had strong enough faith to warrant my embarking on the enterprise before me. So even though he was doubtful of his own faith, he was confident in God's faithfulness. And again, his faith grew in the soil of severe trials, of needs, spiritual and physical. And so he understood faith like very few. Later on in his ministry, he said, the secret of faith, and when a man like, like, like Hudson Taylor talks, says something like this, the secret of faith, your ears really need to perk up. He says, the secret of faith that is ready for emergencies is the quiet practical dependence upon God day by day, which makes him real to the believing heart. The secret of faith that is ready for emergencies is the quiet, practical dependence upon God day by day, which makes him real to the believing heart. It is the faith that trusts God in the little things and so knows that God is trustworthy in the big things. Do you have that kind of faith? Do you have that kind of faith? If you do, the church needs you. The church needs you. The church needs you to be praying. The church needs you to be an example of faithfulness in the midst of trials. If you have this kind of faith, you can't keep it to yourself. It is for the building of the church and the glory of God. If you are trying to keep it to yourself, you are behaving like like what Paul warns against in 1 Corinthians 3, 2, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Your faith is for the building up of the church. As we close, I, I just want to strongly, strongly encourage each one of you, each one of us, to be spending time in prayer this week to be trusting that God has promised. This is a promise. This is a promise. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, he says, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each. If you are here this morning as a Christian, you are an each. This is a promise. And so take God at His word and ask Him to reveal to you what your gifting is and to help you to use it for the building of the church. So talk to those who know you best. Ask them what they think, what they think your gifting is. Ask the, ask the leadership, talk to the leadership and say, how do you see me being gifted? Don't go and dictate, say, I think I'm gifted here, here, and here. It's with humility. And ask Ask the, the, the Lord to help the church to see that because we need help to recognize these things as well. And ask the Lord to provide opportunities for you to explore your gifts and to confirm them and to develop them in you for His glory and for the building of His church.
Let's pray together.